Welcome to Protecting Your Assets, the show about protecting people, property, and most importantly, protecting your ass. I'm your host, Lucky Luciano, and I'd like you to join me for a fast-paced and often fiery discussion about security issues with my co-host, Brian the Angry Man Claimant. Whether we're piercing the veil of security, talking your duty of care, or raving about the latest technology, we'll share our thoughts on the issues, the trends that are impacting security today and into the future. So grab a coffee and join us for our latest podcast every second Monday. And don't forget to like and follow us on our sponsor's website, brianclayman.com. And now let's talk about protecting your assets. Hello, folks, and welcome to Protecting Your Assets. We're going to be talking about guarding gone wrong. I'm your host, Lucky Luciano, and uh, with me, as always, is Brian the Angry Man Clayman. A uh, special guest today, our first interview, we're really excited about doing it, is going to be Michael Burgess, who is one of the few certified experts, court certified experts, to testify against uh, clients and property owners when they hire uh, guard, guarding companies and uh, they don't exactly fulfill what, what was expected or, or operate in the manner that we had hoped they would. Um, and he's going to take us through some of the challenges of, of that, um, through the challenges of some of those, those uh, conditions. So with that, I'm going to start with a quick bio on uh, on Mike. Um, we actually met back in 1996. I think we've talked about that before, Mike, that uh, you were actually a trainer for me in uh, at police college. So I, was, I, I, yeah. I, I, I have known you for quite a while. Um, and Mike is the CEO and Managing Director of MD Burgesson Associates Incorporated, a training company that focuses specifically in the area of bylaw and security officer training. The company provides specialized training from the frontline everyday security guard right up to bylaw, municipal enforcement, and police officers. The company is ISO 9001 certified to train federal security officers, uh, for security guards, pardon me, and is CGSB compliant. They are vendors of record training providers to the province of Ontario for use of force and conflict avoidance for all ministries. Again, Mike is a superior court recognized subject matter expert in officer training and education, due diligence, risk management, and aforementioned professors. And this is something that uh, Brian and I have been talking about on all uh, our previous episodes. So it's great to have you on, on board today. He has testified in several superior court cases. Um, I also worked in conjunction with lawyers and judges to settle many cases outside of court including high-profile cases, which I'm sure we'll probably touch on in today's discussion. Uh, mm. The company has been delivering facilitated services in Ontario since 1995. Mike served as an instructor uh, at OPC, Ontario Police College, from 1996 to 2003, so he knows his law enforcement. He has his law enforcement background, um, has done a lot of training since. I know I, I, I dealt with him at Cadillac Fairview, an exceptional uh, trainer. Um, as a consultant, Mike assists in the vetting and drafting of internal policies and procedures related operations, conflict, and risk management, crisis intervention, and so on and so on. Mike is also a published author of a number of technical training manuals and is a regular author for Canadian Security Magazine and other periodicals, blogs, and publications. Mike also writes expert letters and reports of opinion for about a dozen court cases a year, and most of them surround unlawful arrests, excessive use of force, negligence of duty, and civil litigation, all great topics that we're going to probably touch on yeah. today. So welcome, Mike, to the uh, podcast. Thank you. Now that we got that official stuff out of the way, we can relax oh, yeah, and, and get yeah. into the conversation. So we're going to start off with quick um, introduction, what Luke, Ryan and Luke, I usually do. Luke, yeah, just but, before we do this, I, I just want to mention, I, uh, I've i always been a, a big fan and follower of Mike's. Uh, I, I, I uh, haven't had the opportunity to work directly with him. But I realized that all the greatness that I've attributed to Mike is probably wrong. I never realized that he was actually your instructor at OPC. Yes. Yes. And, so, <laughs> and, and, and you actually graduated. 
I yes. thought Mike was rather prescriptive and really good at what he does and makes sure that only the best get through. How the hell did you ever get through? It, it's a testament to his skills to educate and train <laughs> yeah, others. Yeah. <laughs> okay, sorry, I just Hold couldn't resist. Follow the growth screening process, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, get used to those interruptions. Okay, uh, so we start off our we start off our podcast with uh, basically a quick segment on what's keeping you up at night. So over the last couple of weeks, so the, since the last time we've done the episode, uh, COVID is certainly in in the news, continues to be in, in the news, and I was going to open it up with COVID again. Uh, Brian and I know that that's been a, a topic for many of our conversations, but today, you know what? In leading up to to doing this podcast, my uh, my research online has been scary. I'll tell you the the amount of cases that are coming forward, and not just you know incompetent guards, but what guards are expected to do. And, and I hope we're going to get into some of that in, in this podcast. You know the the expectations that are being placed on them, and the community with which they are having to deal with that's changed as well, right? They're more you know mental health issues. A lot of tension. Uh, lockdown isn't going to help that, and so that's really what's on my mind. And, and that's I'm going to cut it short right there because I want to get into the conversation, and I'm going to turn it over to you, Brian. Okay. Well, I was going to talk a little bit about COVID also, but I think that we've got Mike with us today, and I'm just going to follow up on what you said. Is that you know the uh, security uh, environment where guards are operating really is a microcosm. It's it, parallel to what police operate under, and we know the pressures of police are under nowadays in terms of use of force. Uh, the way they engage with the community, and they're highly trained, and they're highly supervised. So I'm really excited about today's conversation because the guards are operating in the same types of environments and same types of community without any types of training similar to what police have or type of oversight. So I think it's a topical topic, especially with the stories that are in the news, and I think we're going to talk about that in a second. So I'm not going to talk about COVID, not going to talk about my friend President Doofus south of the border. I think we can... Uh, uh, move put, uh, ahead put that on pause yeah yeah so i'm going to turn it over to, to mike for you know what's keeping you up these days i think it's going to be our topic what can you share with us in terms of what's brought it to the to the forefront all of a sudden or is it all of a sudden or i mean it seems to be uh, in the press more recently it, there's nothing new here guys this has been going on for as long as uh, my entire police career since the late 1970s but uh, I'm a big standards guy, and that's why I got involved. Um, I chair the core competency committee for the Canadian General Standards Board for the uh, national security officers, by the way. You're allowed to call them that nationally. But I chair that committee, uh, and that was a standard that we reviewed a number of years ago. It's still not where I would like it to be, and it still doesn't cover things, the, the super important uh, controversial things like uh, use of force. Um, even in Ontario, I mean, we had to have the death of Patrick Shan, I think, uh, something like 12 years ago now. Of those 21 recommendations, a lot of them are still not implemented, and they will never be implemented. We can get into why. But again, without standards, uh, the industry itself is pretty much left to its own devices. And then where you do have certain standards in place, we don't have the oversight to make sure that they're adhering to them. So, you know, that's in a nutshell, welcome to my world. <laughs> yeah, and I and and I'd like to get into those topics because I, I really don't understand. I agree with you 100. percent I think there needs to be more more uh, oversight because the industry itself has shown that it's not going to do it. Um, it no. just doesn't. Well, the pricing doesn't help either. We'll talk about that later. But it is a it is a bottom dollar margin, and and so there's not a lot of incentive for companies to want to differentiate themselves from others when the when it's all about price. Although that seems to be changing, and I think we'll talk about that as well. Um, but in a time when guarding demands are starting to skyrocket, thanks to yeah. COVID and other issues, you know this is a timely conversation. So 
before we get into the details, can we really explain to people, I'll, I'll turn it over to, to Mike first and then Brian to engage, but what are we specifically talking about when we talk about guarding um, the security response that opens business owners up to liability, duty of care? I think that's what we really want to get to because I think a lot of property owners in particular have this illusion still that, hey, I signed a contract with the vendor and it's all on him. And then we'll see that, you know, through today's discussion that that's not really the case and they should know what the heck's going on under under their control. Yes. One thing that just popped into my head when you were talking about that was uh, something called Occupier's Duty under the, and I talk about Ontario here, but Occupier's Liability Act. And it, and it basically says the occupier of the premises or, or their agent, which happens to be the guard, uh, owes that duty to take such care in the circumstances that's reasonable to make sure that people who come to the property are reasonably safe while they're there. Now, it goes on to talk about uh, safe from things on one side of the house, such as slips and falls and, you know, ice and snow on the steps and wet floors, broken things. You know, that that's all one side of it. But the other side, it talks about um, the safety of persons on the property from, from events that could be reasonably expected to happen there. You know, wait times, arguments in, the, in uh, you know, the waiting rooms or things that can reasonably happen. The problem doesn't usually come to the forefront until something bad happens. And I, I always said this, why does something bad have to happen to a nice person or a nice company? before things change. I, I don't get it. I mean, in, in country terms, you'd never fix the fence after the horse ran away. You try to fix it before it runs away. Yeah. But you can't convince people of this. So when I when I talk risk management to companies, I'm saying, I know you've downloaded this onto your security guards. However, show me your policy and your procedure on this, this, and this. Oh, well, we don't have those. That's up to the guard company. Well, hang on for a second. No, it's your property. You're yeah, the yeah. one that's liable to tell them what to do and what not to do. And they don't, they don't get that part. So Again, left to their own devices, the guard companies are going to do the minimum quite often that doesn't yep. cost them that much money so that they can increase their bottom line. I mean, let's face it, contract guarding is a cutthroat, you know, bottom feeder business. I mean, and they'll do anything they can to save a buck. And what the operators or the people that hire them don't realize is that they can still be found proportionately liable yeah. for what they did do that was wrong or they just flat out didn't do or refused to deal with. That's the part. It's really, really hard to kind of get that across to property owners who have never been sued or never been in the security business or individuals with, uh, I don't know, human resources or whatever procurement. They they have never personally been sued and they think they stand behind this bulletproof invisible screen that they'll never yeah. be sued. It all comes to the forefront, you know. And it's essentially a chicken and egg argument in that the property owners or the consumer thinks that the security guard company is going to take care of them and knows what they're doing. And the security guard company says, well, listen, the consumer doesn't realize that the peril they're in. So therefore, they don't uh, value quality. Therefore, they're looking at lower price. So the price is the guard companies are just responding to the market. You know, if the market said we wanted uh, guards that were highly trained, that were skilled, and we're prepared to pay X for this, that's what they would prepare, that's what they'd bring to market. But the reality is, there is no expectation on the part of the clients. Mike, earlier, I think before we started, we were talking about guard companies, good companies, bad companies, and uh, you had mentioned, and rightly so, there are good companies, and there are many good companies, but you know, I think they're the exception. You have to decide what market you're in. Are you in the commodity market, or are you in the professional services market? And if you're in the commodity market, that's okay. But just understand that that's a price-driven market. Quality is not important or is not as important. 
and those uh, consumers don't realize that the risks that they uh, uh, have to protect against. Those guard companies that are focused on quality are looking at different types of consumers. They're looking at customers that value what the guard companies could bring and understand the associated liability. So, I, you know, a lot of people think that I'm anti-guard company. I'm really not. And I don't think the guard companies are the problems. Guard companies are businesses, and they're just reacting to the market. And the problem is the market. The market doesn't know what they don't know. So it's a race to the bottom. It's a race to lowest price rather than quality. Yeah, you're, you're right. You're so right, Brian. I've stood up. I've done uh, lectures for a Canadian security magazine, and they're focused on the series. And I stood up in one, and uh, I think, Luciano, I think you were actually there at this one. And I said to them, you know what? The problem isn't the guard company. The problem is you. And I pointed my finger to the executives that were yeah. in the room, and I said, you get what you pay for. You get what you ask for. Yeah. You know and I know that if you want a higher quality guard, you're going to have to pay for it. But the problem is they don't increase your bottom line in your estimation. They're a liability and not an asset. They show up in the uh, expense column and not the income column, and that's why yeah. you treat them the way you do. You know, I, I just have to say, uh, i got to get a word in before Luch starts talking. <laughs> Otherwise, I won't be able to talk at all. But, <laughs> but, but you know, I, I have a client. We have a client that we're dealing with, and they asked us to help them with a business case to move the guards from 14 some odd dollars an hour to maybe 15 or 16 and they said, can you help us put together a business case for the, uh, the building owner? And I said, certainly. It is really easy. Happy to help you. Okay, what would you say? And I'd say, well, the guy at Tim Hortons that ices the chocolate donuts is making $16 an hour. And the guard that you're complaining about protecting an $800 million asset is making $14 an hour. That's your business case. You get what you <laughs> pay for. See, exactly. I, don't know what, I don't know why people think contract security is cheap security. You have in-house groups, and I won't mention names, but some really good companies, real estate companies, have in-house guards that make $20, $25, $30 an hour. And then working beside them is a contract guard doing backfill, making $14 or $15 an hour. Where's the logic in that? What contract security should be is that not a cheap guard. It's an alternate way of procuring a guard. But if the guard is worth $25 an hour or $30 an hour, if the guard needs a, a certain type of training, it's the same whether he's in-house or contract. People, I think, have to get out of their mind the fact that security is not a commodity like perhaps janitorial or other types of things. It's a professional service. When you're doing a building redesign and you're engaging an electrical engineering company, you're not looking at the cheapest. You're looking at a skill set. When you're looking for a, a, a security company, it's the same type of thing. And that's why, Mike, I agree. I think we're uh, uh, 100% aligned on this. I think this is less a security guard industry problem and more a consumer problem. Yeah, I'm going to add part of the problem that you touched on was the fact that they don't really know what they want. Um, and I've read a lot of cases coming out of the States, but more, more increasingly in Canada, where the courts find that the expectations laid out by the client are so vague that they're not specific to anything. And so they, they become more accountable for anything that happens on that property. They don't so know for, what they want. Yeah. yeah. So so what do you expect when you tell a security provider? And, and Brian, we've done some of these RFPs where they say, well, we want security. Well, what the hell does that mean? I mean, security could just be locking the door. It could also be throwing yeah. people off the property. There's a big difference between the two. So oh, yeah. I think there needs to be more understanding as to what security does. And when you got people from pr- procurement doing that kind of work and they don't reach out to security people or they don't have a security resource in-house, that becomes very difficult for those companies to figure out what exactly they expect from their contractors. Well, I think security has become a catch-all phrase. We've talked about this a lot, and I think Mike would agree. 
I mean, is security about to protect an asset and protect people? Is it about standing at a door and saying, can I see your badge? Is it about checking your bag when you leave uh, the facility? Is it about meet or greet? We have to decide what's the difference between security and concierge or greeters or, or shipping and receiving personnel. Security, I think, is a catchphrase is when we have a job that no one else can do, we'll have security to do it. And until we focus on what exactly is security, we won't be able to address this problem because it's too broad a spectrum, I believe. Mike, I'm going to give you a question that I that I had lined up. I wrote, I read it in uh, one of the articles uh, out of the Quebec case with the, the guard that got hit at the Walmart, um, which mm. interesting stuff is coming out of that as well. Apparently, he got into a truck and, 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 and chased the guy down. But regardless, I found this interesting. The owner of the guard company referred to his role or his company's role in fulfilling their security mandate as they his guards need to have to enforce the law and keep control. That's what he has in the article. And then when I read legal um, site, like I did some research on, on, on legal sites as well to get their perspective, they refer to guarding or security's role as having to keep the place safe and secure, which to me are significantly different perspectives and highlight the difference between yeah. what a guard thinks they should be doing and what they legally should be doing. And neither one of those are, are legal. I can tell you straight <laughs> out, they're not. Um, uh, I, I, I come back to the Ontario um, legislation here, the PSISA, where it says security guard is defined as a person who patrols property and protects people for money, for remuneration. That's, that's what they do. It doesn't pare it down any further than that. Now, other provinces in Canada have tried to do that. They call them workers instead of guards in some places. Some have uh, separate categories for um we call it in Ontario, we still call them bouncers. Some people don't like yeah. that term, but yeah. anyway, it is in legislation, so I still use it. But uh, some don't have them for bouncers, some do. Uh, there is no separate category for hospitals, there is no separate category for uh, other specialty uh, skill sets. So you end up with a generic program that doesn't suit everybody, and then you get problems like the Toronto General had in other places. But to come back to your point, the Asante Menzik case, the Supreme Court of Canada in 2003, basically said that um, it is not the duty of the property owners to enforce the law on their property, because the government of Canada would never subvert their authority of the police by handing it down to private police forces, if you will, or private security guard. That'll never happen, you know, because, I mean, the first I mean, if you choose not to have security, your phone call is to the police. They have what's called a duty to act on the property. A security guard, now, if a police officer, and this is the example the Supreme Court used, if a police officer comes and arrests the wrong person, right, they are protected in law as long as they act on reasonable grounds and, you know, acting in good faith. You've heard all that term before. Is a private citizen or a private security guard also protected? And the answer is no, they're not. And the answer, the reason why they're not protected, because they do not have a duty to act. That duty doesn't get passed down from the government. They will, they'll never do that. They right. will never do that. So both those guys in Quebec are like so far off the page. And this is why I'm so busy in court. Hey, man, I, I, I tell them, I'm just a messenger, man. I, I point to Einstein said he wasn't that smart. He just remember where he wrote stuff down, right? <laughs> uh, I'm kind of the same way. I, I, I get into court and I went, you know, you know, you, you get more money than I do to do this. I can only point to the Supreme Court and say, this is what the Supreme Court has said, so this is what I preach. You have a choice to do these things. It's not mandatory that you do them. 
Hey, Mike, so in uh, Ontario, with the basic training that security guards get, this concept of duty to act, is that made very clear to guards? Do they understand it? Because I find, having managed guards in my past life, guards come to the job with all sorts of ideas of what their responsibilities are, but this duty to act thing is not something that I hear coming out of their mouths. No, it is not. Uh, two schools of thought on that. Number one, there's an awful lot of people that go to uh, police foundation law and security courses at the different colleges, and they never become cops. A lot of them end up in the security world with a police mindset, which they've never applied. Right. Yes. So they come with that, that cop approach to the job, and the first thing I've got to do is get them to unlearn that, uh, get it out of their head, because no, you do not have a duty to act. You have uh, occupier's duty to keep people safe. Yes, you do that. However, it doesn't include um, one, a couple of my personal bailiwigs here, uh, Trespass the Property Act, and a, a lot of the, the mess-ups with that, and uh, alcohol-related incidents, you know, which they really shouldn't be dealing with. How do you deal with that? You, you know, when I, in my other life, when I worked for a large real estate company as a national leader, what amazed me is that I would have properties, and one property saw the world one way, and another property saw the world the other way, and more often than not, it was the guards or the local supervisors that were deciding how uh, services were delivered. So I'll give you an example with trespass to property. I would have one property would trespass you for a week, another property would trespass you for yeah. six months, another property for three lives. <laughs> you know, And we're the same company, same real estate management company. And when I would delve into it and ask the question, oh, that's the way we do things in Edmonton, or that's the way we do things at this particular <laughs> building, which is just ridiculous. Because, again, it was clear to me early on that these guards really had no idea what their lawful authority was. They were uh, making decisions based on what they maybe learned in community colleges, you said, or what they saw on TV. And that's why it really is for the most part. And there are exceptions. There's a lot of great companies out there also. But it is, for the most part, the Wild West. And you don't know what you're going to be getting into. Well, I'm going to add that Brian likes, likes to bash the guards a little more than I do. But I got to tell you, like a lot of those guys, I think, are really trying to do the best job they can. But they're under extreme pressure from tenants and property managers who don't know the law, first of all, and think oh that my. because, yeah, think that because they own the building or that they paid, they pay the landlord that, the, you know, that's a private police service uh, ready for them. And that's been a lot of, I think a lot of the problems stem from that inability from the, from the property owner, the ultimately, you know, the person responsible, not pushing back on tenant expectations. And I've tried to do that in some of my previous jobs, successful in some locations, not so successful in others. But it really puts the guard in a bind because they're being ordered to do something and yeah. they don't have to do it. But, hey, you want to get paid, right? So they're sort of they're, they're sort of stuck. Yeah, I could go off on a major segue about the Trespass <laughs> Property Act right now. Major segue. But you're, but you're quite right. It comes down to one thing. Uh, and as you remember from your time at Cadillac Fairview, it comes down to the level of education of the guard. And with CF, uh, we managed to drop the number of arrests to both. 10% of their previous level. It was all documented. It was all tracked. Uh, and there was only one reason why the injury rate went down, the sick time went down, uh, the number of arrests went down, the number of lawsuits dropped to zero, by the way. Uh, and that was because CF saw that in their infinite wisdom to spend the money on educating the guards and then yeah. supervising them properly. And it made a huge world of difference. But as Brian said, when you've got minimum wage guards that can make more money putting icing on donuts at Tim Hortons, they are not going to spend the money on education. And, and to your point, you know, like uh, talk about litigation and Luke, you're about to get sued for defamation of my character. <laughs> it's not that I like to bash the guards. 
I, I honestly believe the guards are doing the best that they can. It's just a lack of oversight and supervision. So my frustration or anger, if you will, is not with the guards, but it's with the companies or the, uh, the, the, the property management companies or the guard companies that manage these guards and leave them on their own. They literally parachute them into a site and oversight also. Is, and, you know, we could segue in oversight, but a complete lack of oversight is what is usually the norm. You know, one of the things we did at Commerce Court was we had supervisors that were really skilled and trained supervisors that were on the job. And what we did was you didn't become a supervisor because you were on the job for three years and didn't get in trouble. It's because you knew how to manage people and you had the skill set. You can mentor people. But I remember seeing situations at Commerce Court downtown during the G20 that were really out of control. And it was just, you know, you had the guards which were intervening and the supervisors were standing back to supervise and to make sure everything was done to policy. That doesn't usually happen. And it really is just a gang of guys that are out there doing what they think is best, absent supervision. So it's not that I think the guards are the problem. And they are a root element, but it's the lack of supervision. The things we allow them to get away with is the problem. So I'll accept your apology, Luke. <laughs> well, I think that's a, that's a uh, like to your point, segue into the second point, which is uh, training, professionalism, licensing, certifications. And Mike, before we started this podcast, again, we were talking about the disconnect between the government aspirations, um, the, the numerous reports that have been done over other inquiries and, you know, the recommendations that have never been implemented versus the businesses, the contractors, the vendors that mm. just aren't going to do it on their own. What are the, some of the challenges you see in that space? Where would you like to see that? You know, how do, how do you see that improving? As I, as I like to say, um, standards put down by government within legislation is like a big ship with a very tiny rudder. Um, it took the Patrick Shand inquest and the death of Patrick Shand to cause the government to even implement mandatory training in the first place. And Ontario was the first in Canada to do it. So why does it have to come to that? I, you know, it's just, it's not one of those things that's all over the news, I guess. And it's not, uh, it's not your son, your daughter or whatever that's getting yeah. killed. So, you know, it's, it's like anything else. It, it has to, has to be forced to happen. So they, they started out with uh, wonderful aspirations. They had OPP officers seconded into the ministry. They had inspections going on, but all that stopped and most people don't realize it. Uh, they downloaded those inspections of, uh, security operators onto the local police departments who know absolutely nothing about security guards yeah. or what they have to do or what they have to know. There is still a lot of fraud going on within the uh, industry. Uh, a company can have uh, get authority to do their own training and they can shortcut the heck out of it. I know of hundreds and hundreds of cases of fraud uh, where, where guards have been actually put out um, onto jobs that, that barely speak English and certainly can't write it. So I keep wondering how they got by the uh, provincial circle testing and then yeah. i got hundreds and hundreds of roadblocks thrown in front of me i tried because there's such a shortage of guards here i tried to get circle which is a private contractor contracted to the government to do guard licensing for example i tried to get them to allow um immigration canada to work with them to bring more guards into the province who are more than willing to work these are people of means these are university educated people from other countries and Circa put up so many roadblocks that we couldn't do that. Now, wow. I personally, I just got back from the very far north, training a lot of First Nations people up there. Forty-five of them that were in places like fly-in reserves and stuff like this that wanted a security guard license. How do you get them tested? Well, they told us we had to truck them all four hours down to Thunder Bay and make, I think, in pardon? Like, <laughs> this is the 21st century, guys. <laughs> like, you can do testing online now, you know? Yeah. 
So you know what's happened? The, the, and, and kudos to the government. They actually put together a task force, and now now that thing is happening. Uh, I work closely with a company in Toronto, um, GTA, called uh, Security Guard Course, which is uh, one of the largest uh, online providers of training. And uh, with their push, this actually happened. So we now have online security guard uh, testing, fortunately, in order to expedite uh, during yeah, COVID, especially during yeah. COVID, get more licensing and get more guards on the job because it was a huge roadblock when Surfa closed their offices. Mm. All of a sudden, you need more guards and you can't have any and you can't yeah. put them out there legally without licensing, right? Yeah. So how do you get how do you get training to these folks, especially in the remote areas, and they want the job, and uh, the system wasn't there to support it. But hopefully now it's starting to come that way, but it's slow. Mike, what, what, what do you think it is? Like, for example, I never really understood why there is... Uh, you know, like, who's going to push this? Is it the guard industry? Is it the government? Is it the consumer? Like, this isn't a complicated problem to fix, yet the solutions yeah. seem elusive. Why do you think that is? Like, is there politics at play? Is is industry worried about the money it's going to cost them to comply? Because I've always maintained, perhaps wrongly, that if we let government set the pay rate and guards were paid a living wage of $25 an hour or something like that, I know the industry is worried that the consumer, the clients, would be upset. They wouldn't afford it, and they'd be angry with the industry. But they wouldn't be angry with the industry. They'd be angry with government. But once they got over that, at least we'd have a nucleus, a base of people that we could train and provide value. So I just don't understand. You know, getting a vaccine for COVID was difficult. Flying to the moon was difficult. Implementing the Shand inquiry recommendations is not difficult, and it's oh. elusive. Why? Adults don't like three things, learning new <laughs> things, changing, and embracing the uncertain. But guess where all your personal growth comes from? Um, changing, <laughs> learning new things, and embracing the uncertain. It's just human nature 101, man. It's just, they don't, they don't, they don't, they can't get comfortable being uncomfortable with change. You know, what's wrong with the old way of doing things, right? And that's, uh, you know, that's a lot of the, that's a lot of the mentality. And it's just, maybe it's Western culture. I don't know what it is, but trying to force a change to happen is not an easy thing. Um, and like I said, usually something bad has to happen to a nice person before that happens. Now, if I can just talk on one, one particular thing, which is the most controversial out of all the mandatory training that we have, which is use of force. Even since Patrick Shan, now BC aside, I can talk about them separately. But the rest of Canada has not implemented mandatory use of force training. And for one, and I have this in writing, by the way, from different provincial governments. One reason and one reason only. And that is the government of Ontario does not feel that it has the right to put their fingers inside the operations, day to day operations of private companies. Period. Wow. Then, <laughs> hell yeah. I have, I got that. I, I got to tell you, I'll give you a really good example, Brian. Province of Alberta. I said, how come you have a standard in Alberta that's 40 hours for a baton when everybody else in Canada and common sense says it's an eight hour one day course? Well, you have to have it before you can carry it and, and deploy a baton. I went, okay, but uh, send me the curriculum. Oh, well, we, we don't have one. Pardon? You're the one dictating you've got to have this and you don't have it. Well, I said, oh, answer me this question. So what's in the other 32 hours of the course if eight hours of it is baton? And you know what the answer was? It's disturbing that I have been writing. It's whatever the instructor wants to put in the course. Oh, right? my. Wow. <laughs> and wow. the truth shall set you free, you know? Yeah. And I've done a lot of training uh, for many different companies in Alberta. 
And uh, we try to deliver a top-tier program out there, but if they don't have to have it, they're not going to do it. If, it. if the client's not forcing them into doing it, they won't do it. So in Ontario, I suspect you will probably never see mandatory use of force training in the PSI as, as a regulation. They tried it. Well, they, they tried to say, well, if we can't control the standard for guard training, because they can barely even monitor who's licensed and who's not anymore. I mean, they're not going around to the bars like they used to in the early days, checking to see if the bouncer on the door has got a license. That kind of stopped. So if they can't do that, they're not going to be able to monitor uh, use of force curriculums and training and instructor training and who's certified and who's not and what's acceptable and what isn't. It's so ridiculous. In the West, in their legislation, they're using American companies and American standards for Canadian guards. And, I'm, mm-hmm. and I just stepped back. I kind of threw up my hands. I went, look, it, I'll see you in court. You know, uh, yep. a wise man said, you can affect change one of two ways. One is strap on a good legal firm and start hitting people on the head with a two by four with, yeah. the, with the lawsuits, which I do a lot. I get 30 or 40 cases a year over my desk, all related to the same thing. And the other way is to get involved at the, at the height of it and just let the, yeah. you know, what rolls downhill, right? Mm-hmm. So I got, that's why I got involved with the CGSB for that reason only. And, uh, this is why I'm, I'm now, I've now been invited to come back and sit at the table for input to the new people that are now running the uh, ministry for security guard licensing. So hopefully you'll have some input on that, especially around things like, um, healthcare, security guard uh, training yeah. in healthcare. It, cause it's mandatory within that sector. And not a lot of people know that it's not mandatory to have use of force training as a regular guard, but it is within healthcare. So, so Mike, can I quickly add just because this is really important, I think, because there's the other side of the coin is the use of force to me is critical. You're putting somebody in a uniform with an expectation to do something. And yeah, we hope and, and most likely 99% of the time things go well. But that 1% of the time that it doesn't, they should have the skills and training to take care of themselves first and everyone around them. But there's still this underlying current out there that I just bugs the heck out of me. But this observe and report mentality and the presumption that if I tell my guards just to observe and report, I'm good. I'm protected. They can't get into trouble. And that's just not accurate either, I believe. Oh. Yeah, and I, did, I, I just want to add something before Mike answers to that. And that goes back to what I said earlier. We have to decide what is their role. Are they security? Are they concierge? Are they office overload? For example, if it truly is observe and report, it shouldn't be a, a shirt that says security on the back of the vest because that implies to the people around them that that person is going to rescue you, is going to intervene if something happens. If it's an observer report role, if it's a concierge role, don't put them in that high-profile uniform. The minute you put someone in a uniform that says security, there's an expectation when I'm dropping off my children to that mall or dropping my wife off to that building, and I see security, I think she's going to be safe from being molested, from being bothered. I don't think that necessarily if there's a concierge. So with that, Mike, I'll, let you, I'll give it to you now. To <laughs> <laughs> I, I have a standard. I have a whole bunch of standard lines that I like to use in court. I've actually had situations where they were calling their security people hosts. Oh, yes, OL, yes. OLG did that. They had people that could not get security guard licenses because they had criminal records. So they <laughs> turned them into bus boys and <laughs> put a different colored shirt on. But the moment something went down, they were right. They were in it, right? So, but I've also had situations where they put people on the front line who quite literally put their hand up and says, "Oh, this is not in my job description. I don't like if there's violence, right? There's a heated argument. It's starting to escalate. Maybe pushing and shoving or something worse. 
And basically, the people are stepping back going, okay, hang on, observe, report, call 911, and stand here. So when I get, yeah. when I get to court, when I get to court, and the judges give me a lot of latitude in, in the courtroom, I said, Your Honor, I'm just gonna, I'll put it out there as a hypothetical situation. You've heard testimonies saying that the person stepped back, said, not in my job description, observe and report. Correct? Yes, it is. Okay, good. So let's change the scenario to the person that's getting pummeled on the yeah, ground and boots exactly. onto into the wheelchair is your son, your daughter, your mom, your dad. Are you going to do the same thing, step back? And of course they're going to go, oh, well, oh, no. I said, well, hang on for a second. Listen to what you've just told the court. You would involve, you would get involved if they're related to you, but you would not because it's not in your job description and your mandate says observe and report. Give me a break. Come on. In civil court, all I have to do is tip the scale 1% against you. And that's exactly how I do it. And you know who the problem is? The problem is the property owners. Yep. Yes. Property owners and it's the managers. They're going, look at, just observe report. If it's bad enough, back off, call the cops and just wait. Don't get involved. You're not trained for that. We're not going to train you for that. Oh, God forbid we're going to give you handcuffs because you'll probably use them. Yep. You know, and, and that's, that's the attitude and that it doesn't. Like I, I go to court maybe once every two or three years, but I write 90 or 100 reports a year because I just point to the obvious. And when the lawyers get together at the table for the examination for discovery, they go, oh, boy, we better not go to court with this one. Yeah. yeah. At that at that point, as, as Brian would say, you're better off not having security at all and at least at justifying all. that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah be, because, there's, because there's a duty of care. It's foreseeable. Listen, it's like having life insurance, okay, and you finally die and they won't pay out. Well, why did I have the life insurance? It's easy to be a security company every day to say, good morning, here's an umbrella, it's raining. But that's not why we spend millions of dollars a year. We spend it oh. for that one time a year or a lifetime that it happens, and it better work when it happens. And more often than not, it doesn't. You know, you talked about, I actually lived it. I had some security guards in a really big building in downtown Toronto that there was a fight in front of them, and they were paralyzed. They couldn't intervene, and there had to be some tenants. Uh, female tenants intervened. It was not only embarrassing, it was criminal. <laughs> yeah. Negligent. Negligent. The, first, the yeah. first person they sued is the security guard standing there with their hands up. Yeah. And of course, if it ever gets to court, they're the ones going, well, my boss said and my policy says, right? Well, and, and you know, there's something I always tell clients. There's two parts to this. There's your, your, your legal obligation under duty of care, but there's also brand and reputation. Like what used to amaze me is often... Uh, Crop, uh, property management companies, asset managers, the people that control the money, when you would confront them with a logical argument, they would say, look, we're not going to spend the money. That's why we have insurance. Okay. And I said, okay, be that as it may, the insurance company is not going to indemnify reckless behavior forever. Having said yeah. that, even, even if they will, you know what? You could pay a hundred thousand dollar claim and survive. It's a brand, the damage to brand reputation often is not survivable. And that's what property owners and that's what people who use security services have to understand. If you've decided that you need security for an application, that means there's an acknowledgement that there's a risk and you have a duty of care obligation to do something about that risk. But then to stumble and not fulfill the mission is negligence. It's liability and it's going to nail you. Absolutely. Can we? I mean, you, you mentioned 100,000. I don't go to court anymore, Brian, unless it's at least one to one and a half million. Yeah. Most of them are around three to five million. I got one on my desk right now, which is all over the press. It's 14 and a half million. You know, Mike, I think maybe that has to happen because in the States, they're crazy with litigation. They're, uh, the, the amounts are crazy. So they take it a bit more seriously. We don't, <laughs> you know, honestly, I can't, I can tell you the, I, I can't tell you the number of times I've had discussions with property owners and they say, Oh yeah, you know what? We've got insurance. It's a, 
$10,000 deductible. Well, maybe the deductible has to be $2 million, and maybe we have to start seeing multi-million dollar uh, claims to take this seriously, because we're not. It's the cost yeah. of doing business. That's the way they see it. Yeah, it I wanna, now, if I, go ahead. Go ahead, Mike. I don't want to cut you off. I've been having some interesting discussions around uh, healthcare security, because it's really coming into the forefront these days. And like I mentioned earlier, it, for the hospitals themselves, it's it's not an option. It's mandatory. It's actually within legislation, the patient restraint legislation in Ontario. Two years ago, the Ministry of Health and Ministry of Labor released a report. The uh, the report basically has some quote unquote suggestions in it <laughs> for training uh, in house security guards. Because I just kind of a, a quick example: uh, a security guard who works in a hospital operates under the medical officer in charge of that facility. They have one extra accountability which means in a hospital, they're allowed and have authorities to act under the Mental Health Act and under the patient restraint legislation, which no other guard in Ontario can. Now, that that material is not taught in the basic guard course, and neither is the Occupier's Liability Act. It's not taught in the basic guard course. So the companies that uh, we're about to roll out nationally, by the way, uh, hopefully within the next month or two, what we call a HEART program, which is the Healthcare Aggression Response Training Program, WSIB is going to uh, bring it under their umbrella and offer employers a discount on WSIB premiums if they take the course. Wow. It's vetted material. It's court, you know, court vetted material. But now try to convince the public that they need it. Yeah, I think what the WSIB is doing is a first step, though. They're giving a financial incentive to the public, yeah. to the consumer. And I think we've got to do more of that type of stuff. You know, yeah. because we have failed, I guess, as security thought leaders to educate the the owners or the consumers. So that hasn't worked. So maybe we've got to have some financial inducements or legislative requirements because, you know, cut. <laughs> now you lost everything. I, yeah, I don't even know. You know what, Luke? You're going to have to take it from here. I don't. Okay. Oh, my God. He's on third. Yeah. Okay. Well, look, now, now that we've, we've dealt with uh, Brian's blip, um, <laughs> let's, let's continue. I, I had some thoughts. You mentioned it a couple of times, uh, Mike, and, and I think we underplayed a lot. And that is the influence of the U.S. in, in, in our operations, in our perspectives, in our public psyche. Because I think it, it's definitely a different approach, uh, in my experience with the Americans. And I think most people would suspect they tend to be more aggressive. Um, they come up here thinking that it's like New York City and you know, the threats are the same and, and they just aren't. Good or bad, that's another discussion because I think on the, on the other end of the scale, Canadians are way over the top when it comes to being naive and, and uh, sort of head in the sand in terms of what's actually sure. going on out there. Because there's a lot of crazy stuff that guards deal with on a day-to-day basis. But I think another thing that plays into some of the challenges in the business is the misperception uh, of, of, of the guarding programs and who does the actual guarding. Uh, that mall cop mentality is what I wanted to get at. There's there's actually groups out there who come to properties looking to instigate, looking to get their 15 minutes of fame on, on a YouTube video by getting in guards' faces and yeah. and things like that. So it is a difficult position to be in, and yet the public thinks you know it's it's a joke. It's there's there's no big deal as to what they're doing. It's anybody can do it. I used I used to I used to hate watching listening to um, big shots, you know, CEOs and and directors or whoever the heck they, else they thought they were coming down and de- degrading guards or trying to do what they were supposed to do uh, because it simply offended somebody or, or didn't look right to them. You know, I, I would never come to you and say, 
my plumber didn't have a smile when he serviced my toilet. But a guard who happens to have a bad day, maybe he's coming off a night shift, had to deal with a drug overdose, and he's not smiling, heaven forbid, right? You get a phone call at your at your phone saying, hey, one of your guards wasn't smiling today. He needs to be reprimanded. And that's the kind of environment these guys actually live in. It is. I mean, it's just, uh, there was a video that went uh, uh, viral, uh, Jackson Square Mall, that happened a number of years ago. You're probably aware of that one. It ended up in a court case, and you're exactly right. Those people went into that mall to instigate, and it worked. And boy, did they pick the wrong guards. I mean, they ended up in a fistfight with the guards, and the guards lost, by the way. Mm-hmm. But when it ended up going to court, at the end of the day, the judge, trying to be very diplomatic about it, said no one is blameless here. The guards completely overreact, did the wrong thing, stirred the pot. It just screams lack of training. But then yeah. the instigators were the ones that stirred the pot. So. Nobody wins, and the brand damage is incredible, yep. you know, to both the company, the guard company, because they're there on all over YouTube in full uniform with their shoulder flashes showing. So, you know, and I use them as a, a training aid saying, look, don't do this, guy. This is trespass gone crazy. Like, what do you – and the incident that happened just the other day with the – they saying, oh, guy gets arrested by mall cops for wearing not wearing his mask. Give me a break. That never happens, by the way. It's illegal to tell. You can't arrest somebody, but it isn't true. This yep. is a press trying to sensationalize something. Yep. And the guard's trying to do a tough job. I get it. You've got somebody giving them a hard time. But again, it's not how you implement the Trespass to Property Act. And then, and then all kinds of horrible, untrue statements like, uh, you know, we were, we, we don't allow them to video record in our, in our mall and we're going to do something. Okay. I mean, that's just a house rule, but you can't get stupid and start taking cameras away from people. Yeah. That's been done before. It didn't end well. You know, it doesn't stop. It never ends. It, no, it, it never, never does. I remember one property. Sorry, Brian. I just quickly, the I was trying to introduce body armor at, at a particular location. They had a methadone clinic across the street. They had the mental illness clinic across the street. So you can sort of suspect the type of issues that these guys were dealing with on a day-to-day basis. And then, of course, there was a Timmy's in our in our property. So they would all come there every day. It was a constant problem, constant struggle. And they were getting assaulted, uh, you know, knives, syringes. And so I suggested these guys need body armor. And of course, the asset manager's like, well, no, that doesn't look good. It doesn't fit our image. And as luck would have it, as he was coming down to talk to me one day, I was reviewing a video from the night before where a mentally ill uh, woman, elderly woman, had a, uh, okay, it was an umbrella. Well, so it was a bit funny, I guess, on that end. But she was trying to whack the crap out of this security guard who was trying to help her and, you know, doing stabbing motions, which could seem funny, but you could still get injured, right? And this asset manager looked at it and goes, what's that? And I said, that's your security guard. That's what he deals with on a day-to-day basis. And they couldn't believe it. They thought they just oh. stood there and said good morning to people. I mean, it's ridiculous. I know. Mike, I just want to follow up on something you said before Luciano cut me off so really <laughs> a few seconds ago. What do you think the biggest failure is uh, with security when you gave the example of the guards that were in that fight for you know over the trespass issue? Is it poor training of guards or is it more a lack of effective oversight and supervision? Because I'm sort of with the school saying that, you know what, as long as you have effective oversight and quality supervision, you can sort of manage your way through the situation. But if you don't, if you're only relying on guards, there's no one watching them. They're poorly trained. It's always going to turn out poorly. Am I being too simplistic? Is it a failure of supervision and oversight? Boy, I could have some fun here. <laughs> um, I would much rather take, and I've said this many times, I would much rather take a waiter or waitress who's worked in a tough bar for a number of years and turn him into a security guard 
than to try to take somebody out of a police foundations course and put them in a security guard uniform. Oh my, like the people who come out of those bars, they know how to use their head, their heart, and their mouth. Yeah. And they, the last thing on earth, they're, they know there's going to be instigate. They know the triggers, right? They've had the experience, uh, to do this. Now, like I said, I was going to have a bit of fun. I've trained rooms full of managers and I just put a simple 10 question test in front of them and every single one of them failed. They did not have a freaking clue about things like Trespass to Property Act or Liquor License Act or Occupier's Liability or Criminal Code Authority to defend yourself or other. They hadn't a clue, right? If they did have good common sense, that will only get you so far until you get to the push or shove. You know, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And, you know, and they start getting pushed or the guard starts yeah. getting pushed. And then all of a sudden they find themselves up against the wall by the throat. Hang on for a second. The policy says disengage, call the cops, observe and report. But here's this guy with his hand around the guard's throat. <laughs> uh, if I touch this guy, I'm going to get fired. Yeah, but you're not paid to be a punching bag. So which is going to overrule which? The criminal code of Canada or your policy and procedure? I mean, I, I had to go to bat for a guard. For example, uh, and I don't mind telling you, the, the guard actually identified a criminal and it was a fairly serious, uh, what they were doing was money laundering within malls. And the guard caught, picked up on it, called the cops, he observed, reported, he called it. The guy walked off the property, the guard followed him to the edge of the property and stopped, just like he was trained to do, not a problem. The police car pulls up about 30 seconds later. The guard watches the cur- he says, are you still on the phone with my dispatcher? And the guard says, yes, I am. He said, great, just tell him I'm going around the back of the building. So he does. So around the back of the building and not 30 seconds later, it got, the police officer got overwhelmed by the bad guy. At the wow. back, and it was a fight for his life, the, the police officer's life. So common sense, he, they can hear the officer screaming on the police radio, which came over to the guard. So guard uses his common sense, leaves the property to mm-hmm. aid a police officer who was fighting for his life and quite literally saved his life. And they solved the crime and they got the bad guy and it all ends well. And they turned around and tried to fire the guard because <laughs> he left the property. I mean, that kind of stuff is not uncommon. I mean, it was a real easy fix for me because I said, look, go to the police, get the letter saying, we're going to give you a medal for this. Thanks yeah. a lot. It's a lot of life to you. And take that to the in, to the board when you go to have your firing you know, take place and say, I just want you to include this in my file because it'll be in the lawsuit. Okay, so and this sort of... This, common sense is it's gone, right? You know, so this sort of leads into a question I wanted to ask you. Often these investigations are done by people that aren't really competent to make the decision or do the investigation. The case in point is with TTC Special Constables. It's just in the newspaper right now. That arrest they did last year, I think you're sort of smiling, Mike, because I think you know the one I'm talking about. The fair inspector, the guy was belligerent. Two transit enforcement officers were on the bus or the streetcar. Became a bit of a shoving match. Anyways, the investigation is concluded. According to the investigators, the TTC uh, Special Constable Service did a terrible job, yada, yada. I think it's a crock of whatever. But if you look at who the investigators are, or what their background, they've never been in a policing situation in their life. They're labor lawyers, is my understanding. What are your thoughts about that? Because a lot of people in the case that you just gave, example, that fired the guard, they have no idea what it's like to be a guard or what it's like to be a police officer. These are just business people. Or these are the security guard companies that don't want to piss off the client. How typical is that? I'm smiling because I've been involved in lawsuits against the TTC in in my past. And they ended up paying paying big time. And when I first get involved in those things, I always ask them for, show me your training. Show me your human resources records for training of that particular officer. 
then show me the credentials of the person who's actually doing the training and how they become, you know, yeah. and, and the bulk of the problem. And, and there was some pretty obvious things. Well, for example, I mean, the TTC lost their special constable status for the longest time. You yes. guys know that. Yeah. However, it didn't change their behavior. They were still out there acting as if they were special constables and making illegal arrests. And this is why I got involved because, oh, by the way, where's your security guard license? Oh, we don't need to have that. Well, hang on for a second. Are you patrolling property for the purposes of guarding people? Well, yeah. I said, then the Ontario legislation says you need a guard license. And guess what? They didn't have one. Right. So, I mean, this is easy. This is yeah. easy. And then, and then all of a sudden you get tight budgets. And the first thing that gets cut is training. And of course, we want to say, oh, well, you know what? We need more uh, tactical communication training, dealing with uh, cognitively impaired persons, elder illnesses, um, you know, mental illness, all the hands-off, uh, warm and fuzzy stuff. But on the other side of the corn, you absolutely have to know what you're doing physically when all that fails, of course. But we want them to come in with a soft approach first, but it's not what's taught which is why they're still teaching punching, kicking, elbows, knee strikes, baton strikes, and hard skills in uh, corrections, because I'm involved in a couple of cases with them, and they, giving people pain is not a valid paradigm for controlling violence. We know that it isn't, especially if they don't feel the pain, right? But yet, there's that police mindset that's instilled in a lot of guards, and the TTC see themselves more as police than they do as security, yeah. and that's, that's not an uncommon thing. Being as the fact that they get trained by those types of trainers, uh, as well, who will also train the police, but they don't, they don't make the mind shift to go, hang on for a second. You have a very narrow scope of what you can and cannot do. You can't well, get past that. You know, it goes back to the importance of having sound legislation because the environment that exists right now is, it, it, it's a free for all. So you've got property owners or consumers of security guard services saying, look, we're in the real estate business. We don't want to be handcuffing people. We got guard companies are hiring young men and young women to do a very difficult job, not giving them clear direction and clearly making like the TTC case. To give you an example, uh, a family member of mine was a TTC special constable at the time. He's now with uh, a police service here, but he was saying that the attitude of the guys, the morale is just shattered, and the the, the knowledge that they're not going to be supported when they they're called to do these difficult tasks, dangerous tasks, means that people are reevaluating their career choices. This is not a good place to be in. And I, I find with security guards often, they don't realize how they put themselves in harm's way, not so much of being beaten up, but just being decimated in the courts because they're not trained or prepared to do the things that we're going to ask them to do. And then we just nail them because they're on their own. The client won't stand up for them. The guard company is going to say, well, that wasn't in their training. And the young man or woman is just left hanging. Yep, so, right. see, so see, Luke, I don't hate guards. I care for them. It's, it's an un, unreasonable expectation. They, they, and I know a lot of, uh, young police officers when I was at the police college for a long time, uh, over eight years and they would come in on day one and they're thinking, uh, you know, good pay, nice regular page scales, uh, room for advancement, cradle to grave, full benefits, but no one told them the realities of the job. You yeah. know, the yucky, the downside, the yucky doubt stuff that causes PTSD, that stuff. Now the turnover rate, and I could talk about uh, generational differences here, but the turnover rate in policing, the average uh, career lifespan of a police officer today is only eight years. Uh, back in my day, if you had more than two or three jobs by the time you were 21, you were considered unstable and no one would hire you, right? Yeah. Ask the average 21-year-old today how many jobs they've had, and they go, oh, my God, dozens. Why? Because they'll quit for 50 cents or 10 cents an hour and go down the road. Now, yeah. the, the security industry, there's no secret, the security industry has a turnover rate of about 
Did you know that the turnover rate for PSWs or personal support care workers today because of COVID is 60 or 70%? Yeah. 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 Because of COVID, they've been told unreasonable expectations. They were taking it because they wanted to do the right thing. And then they realized, oh my goodness, this is a lot riskier than I thought. And I'm not getting paid very much. And by the way, it's an unregulated industry. Yeah. And, uh, and, and they're quitting in droves. You know, again, unreasonable expectations. I just, like I said, I just got finished uh, three weeks in the far north training regional hospitals up there. And the nurses and the doctors and the clinical staff have never really worked with the security guards because they have no idea what they can or cannot do. But they're calling, uh, and the guards were pushing for more training, which they got. But they were saying, look, at when there's a court white, when there's violence in the hospital, guess who's front and center? The doctors are stepping back and going, I make my living with these hands. I can't afford to get them injured. And the nurses are going, well, this isn't in the ONA and the, uh, and the nursing curriculum. And it's not, by the way. I've already talked to the nursing colleges about it, about how to deal with the violence in the workplace. Here's a stat for you. The level of violence and the level of injuries in the healthcare sector is three times higher than policing or corrections. Three times. And that's why it's an ongoing problem. That's why it was in the press just the other day again about these nurses. You saw them marching in front of the yes. hospital. Yeah. Saying, yeah. This does not shock me. Right. This is, this is not new. They're trying to do something about it. Well, it, it's, it's interesting you say that because as a consultant, my, the takeaway I have based on what you said is that I tell my clients, it's incumbent on you to set the standard. It's incumbent on you to do your due diligence and understand because you're wrong if you think that you're going to hire company A, B, C, D, via Garda, Paladin, Paragon, Secure Test, G4, whoever, and they know what they're doing. They do know what they're doing according to the existing legislation, but let's, that, that's the starting point. That bar is too low. So you know, you have to define the mission, you have to define what it is you're looking for, and you've got to compensate properly. Because if you're waiting for the system to write itself or change itself, it's not going to happen. So like the case yeah. of hospitals, they have to be educated and just because you can get a $14 untrained guard doesn't mean that's the guard you should need. It's got to be mission-focused. Luke and I often talk about this on the podcast. You've got to know where you're going because if you don't know where you're going, you're never going to get there. And I think that yeah. onus is not on the security guard companies. I think it's on the market. And once the market gets their shit together, then the companies in turn are going to react. I think we're, we're approaching this the wrong way. We've got to get the consumer to raise the bar. The market, you know, that's how the, the capitalism works. Someone, the market's going to uh, fill the need. But right now, there is no need. It's so low, poorly defined. I've also seen some clients step forward, uh, whether they want to be altruistic or it's a business decision. But there are more and more clients stepping forward, basically trying to partner with um, guarding companies to discuss the viability of a, an actual living wage, right? Something that, that people mm -hmm. can get into and it becomes a career for them. And so the money will be more in theory, and that suggests that they will be able to invest more in the training and preparations and the equipment for these guys. And whether it works is, you know, remains to be seen. But I think it's an encouraging sign that there are few, but there are some that are starting to recognize some of the challenges in the business and are willing to at least explore the possibility or options on how to fix that. Do you guys see the same type of things happening? Yeah, I, I think Brian hit it on the head uh, earlier with his uh, donut analogy there. I mean, you've got an $800 million <laughs> property guarded by uh, two people making minimum wage plus a buck and a half. It just, it makes no sense, you know? Well, and, and in the old days, and I'm, I'm really going back now to my days in the military when they talked about having to put out a fire picket. And basically you were just there to make sure the electrical systems didn't go sideways or there wasn't a fire and, you know, you could respond to small things before they actually happen. Trying to be proactive. 
but it was purely done back in those days for safety to increase the response time for uh, fire departments and whatnot. But still, today it's done. A lot of the insurance companies are giving discounts to people who have live bodies, warm yeah. bodies in these people as as uh, a first response. They're not relying on uh, systems, right? Fire yeah. systems or whatever. They're not relying. So how do you, I mean, if the premiums got to be too cost ineffective, I think that would get their attention. They're going, whoa, hang on for a second. You mean I can cut my premiums by 10, 15, 20%? That's a lot of money. Yeah. They go, hang on for a second. That would actually, we could actually hire more guards, do a better job, you know, and reduce our claims if we looked at it that way. But the insurance companies won't get on because they like premiums, right? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> now, you want to talk about people who don't like to pay money. Insurance companies don't like paying claims because it's bad business. <laughs> it is real bad business. Right. They don't want to fork out these million dollar claims. So a lot of the ones that get really, really bad, these court cases across my desk, they don't get settled until the 11th hour. Because insurance companies don't want to pay it. They're trying to. I, I've got some on my desk right now where they have already admitted. I'm talking government agencies, too, have already admitted their liability, but they don't want to pay the big amount. They want to pay yeah. a small amount. Yeah, of course. They don't look liable. They are liable. Yeah. That's not the issue. And I'm thinking, wow, has it come to that? It's all about the money. They yep. don't necessarily care about the person who died in the process. They just care about, is it going to be 14 million or is it going to be five? So where's the motivation for them to actually hire a guard in the first place or hire a good trained guard in the second place? Um, hospitals are, are different. Well, I mean, they're, they have to provide a safe environment for people to come to. It, um, the suicide rate in the far north when I was there is unbelievable. The number of uh, what they call Form 1 patients has tripled or quadrupled in the last two years alone. So the level of violence in the north is just is unbelievable. And it's and the Ministry of Health and Ministry of Labor put down that report two years ago saying that it's already at an unacceptable level. And the hospital is saying, yeah, we don't care what the ministry wants or what they don't want as far as guards. We're going to train our people. It's not okay. Um, that, that's them. That's them. Mike, you were saying that hospitals are held to a different standard according to the legislation which governs in the Mental Health Act. There was another yeah. act, Security Act, and that's why yeah. their training and their service delivery models are different. But can't you make the same argument for the non-hospital environment, let's say commercial real estate? Under the Occupier's Liability Act, duty of care, uh, concepts of duty of care, duty of care is not a nice to do. It is a tort legal obligation that you must right. do. Now, the issue might come, is it foreseeable or reasonable that guards are trained to stop uh, muggers in the parking garage? And, and that would be a legal argument. But couldn't the duty of care uh, argument be made as the reason why the standard has to be raised? Because right now, most guard companies, or at least most properties, are not meeting this basic minimum standard. They have not identified what's foreseeable, and they're not preparing their guard staff to deal with what's foreseeable. Clearly... If you've got a Al-Qaeda terrorist coming into a Scarborough strip mall, that's really not foreseeable. But it might be more foreseeable if you're protecting the CN Tower. And if you haven't trained to that level, you're now legally liable. Shouldn't that be the impetus to raise the bar? Don't we have the mechanisms in place? We're just not using them. And it's because in Canada, you get sued and it's not a big deal compared to the States, so people aren't motivated? Yes, yes, and yes. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, like I, questions I, I, I yeah. thought you'd agree. <laughs> um, if I can say one thing, I, I used the term in court, and I got severely dressed down for using it, and that term is called best practices. Oh, yes. <laughs> they caught me off, and they said, 
Mr. Burgess, there is no such thing as best practice. I said, pardon? Well, there is only something called successful practice. And that doesn't mean if nine, if nine places are doing it one way, it doesn't make it right. You know, as an Inuit man once pointed out to me in class, he said, if you're not the lead dog, the view never changes. <laughs> Think about that one. <laughs> you know what? The man was right. He says, buddy, he says, nobody wants to break trail. But he said, if you know that your property has some unique challenges to it, you can't go by best practices. Yeah. That is just not a smart thing to do. You've got to recognize what is or is not foreseeable. But the worst thing I was ever li- guilty of all my life is listening to myself. And this is where you guys come into it. You're going to come in. You're going to, and I've done property assessments, risk assessments and places. And I'm going, okay, so what about this? And what about this? And what about this? And they go, oh my God, I'm here every day. And I never saw that. And I said, yeah. do you know why that is? That's called perceptual blindness. Because yeah, you yeah. don't want to see what you don't want to see because exactly. you're not trained how to see it. And you guys are coming in. I'm coming in with a different perspective and going, oh, my God, what about this? You're vulnerable here. And how long has that been going on? And, and what what is the definition of foreseeable risk? Depends on your perspective and who's doing it. But, you know, you're right. And thank God it helps me pay the bills sometimes. <laughs> it's been a bit quiet the last little while. <laughs> but, but, you know, I, I think, though, you can quantify foreseeable risk. You know, it's interesting. Yeah. One of the things, when it, well, you, you can, in the sense that uh, I ask clients often, how often do you have laptops being stolen? What is your data set telling you? And the problem for most companies, they don't have data. They, they, they do reports, but they're not taking any data. I agree with you, Mike. You know, it's hard to know what's foreseeable, but you can get an idea. If you see that, like, uh, between 7 and 10 at night, the late workers are getting mugged at a higher level than they're getting mugged during the daytime, and then you realize, well, that's happening because they don't have any security patrols at 7 to 10 in the parking garage, that's a foreseeable risk that you can plan against. And that's sort of the position I've always taken. So there are some things that are easily foreseeable, some other things that may not be as easily foreseeable. So, for example, 9-11. Airplanes going into a building. Is that foreseeable? It wasn't at the time and it still isn't, but it, it, it was foreseeable that you could be subject to a terrorist attack. So mm. I think there's more we could be doing based on looking at the data. And that's a whole other debate, a whole other yeah. podcast. The lack of gathering data and analyzing that data because it's out there. We're just not looking at it. And perspective is the key, right? I, I call it double thick rosy glasses. Bad things happen to other people syndrome. Yes. Yeah. Right. And Early. just because it's never happened to you doesn't mean it's not going to happen. It just hasn't happened yet. And yeah, again, I, why does it take, uh, back to the full circle, why does something bad have to happen to a nice person before things change? And that's why they have consultants, and that's what we do. We go in there to tell them, you know, listen, I haven't died yet, but I know I'm going to die one day, and I could die naturally or unnaturally. So I try and understand what are the risk factors and live accordingly. I don't want to wait till I get sick. I don't want to wait till I get lung cancer to stop smoking cigarettes. I mean, that's really what we're talking about. You're entirely right, though. We don't think like that. It hasn't happened. If I'm running a business or a property, I've got other things I want to spend my money on. And if I don't think about it, maybe it will go away. And, it, you know, it doesn't. It, it Sooner or later... You're going to have to deal with it. That's a good place to move it to our final spot because we could talk about this all day, I know, because oh, we're both we're all passionate about it. But keeping in mind the, the time and uh, that our listeners have to a lot to this, um, let's move on to some closing remarks and, and some key takeaways you might have to our, our listeners, especially the business leaders who, who employ security contractors or are considering implementing security programs. What are the, some key things that they should be aware of or considering if, if they go down that road 
um, regarding security operations. Mike, I'll, I'll hand it off to you for, to summarize your thoughts and, and some closing remarks. Maybe it's a good thing that we're actually doing this and try to get the word out. COVID uh, turned most companies on their ear uh, when it first But We had started doing online training as a value added. Everybody still wanted as much as possible still to do in-class courses. Well, COVID turned all of that on their ear. And even the ministry, the provincial ministry said, oh, well, we can postpone all of our use of force training and all the other trainings that we do, conflict avoidance and, you know, nonviolent intervention courses, all that kind of stuff. Well, that only happened for about three or four months. In six months, they're going, hey, we got people expiring here. How are we going to deal with that? Because we got to do social distancing and we got to do all that. So we started to develop a lot more online courses. And we're the, we're the first ones, and I believe the only ones, who can actually do handcuff and use of force certification training online. Now you think, oh my God, how is that possible? It is. Like any monkey could teach you how to put a pair of handcuffs on a person. It's not that difficult. Use of force theory and stuff is done through videos. I'm not talking about active handcuffing or getting into fights with people. Most yeah. of the guarding companies don't want that anyway. And the clients don't want it either. If you can passively arrest somebody for something like shoplifting or whatever, then this is how you do it. Here's how you do this. We've been online with that. The cost is minimal, and they can put people through without taking them away from their jobs because they are shorthanded. So we, we changed our thinking to put it out there. It was the same with code white training for the hospitals. It was the same with training bylaw officers for private property and security guards, how to write parking tickets. We do all that now through the Ontario Traffic Council online, where before we never did it. So we've had a big paradigm shift in guard training, particularly as we can raise the standard because they're not that busy. Let's face it. Some of these places are shut down and they're skeleton staff and they're saying, they're calling me saying, well, do you have some courses? Yeah, we got lots of them. Now's a good time. Note taking, report writing, communications, dispatcher training, you name it. We've got it all over our website. So this is why we got involved with the security guard course because they were doing basic level training. Uh, and their partners, Rescue 7, which is doing the first aid training nationally, by the way, for them, uh, partnered with us to put out code white training and use of force training and bylaw training for parking and all that kind of stuff online, which saves a ton of money because the guard industry is all about, you know, can we, can we give our clients more value for their dollar? And we're saying, yeah, you don't need to spend two days in a classroom anymore. We can do a lot of it online and you know, significantly uh, not impact your bottom line. So we've, we've had to change. We changed as a result of this. And there's no excuse not to have trained guards. I've got a conference call this afternoon with one particular ministry. They were the ones that prompted me to do the use of force training online. And they said, look, at, we, we can't because of COVID do the hands-on physical skills. So I said, no, you can't. Actually, I shouldn't say, no, you can't. Yes, you can, but you need an exemption. We just got an exemption to run all the hospital training up north because it's a, it's an essential service. Yeah. We had to do it, right? Um, because the violence is increasing and you can't put an untrained person out onto the front line, COVID or no COVID, with no training. Yeah. So it's full PPE and masks and the, the whole nine yards. So we did it. But now the ministry is started. This is a big, big inside secret here. I'm going to broadcast it. Um, <laughs> yeah. They're going to start increasing the number of enforcement officers going around to check on businesses that are opening during COVID. So they're hiring like crazy, trying to get more inspectors trained, which is why they called us to do more training online. We're going to be socially distanced, but apparently the officers doing the inspections aren't. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Okay. So we've had to change as a result. So things are changing. It's not the same. Um, and again, with, with regards to uh, in-house training, I, I, I wrote a, I read a note in a, an article that you sent me, actually. One of the vice presidents out west from Garda was saying, uh, they can't do conflict avoidance training and use of force training because of COVID. Well, sure you can. 
expand your thinking. Come outside the box. I hate that term, but come outside the box and <laughs> think about it. Yep. It can be done. So you see things getting better going forward when it comes to the duty of care, all these things that we've been talking about. Is the industry heading in the right direction? I'd like to say yes, but I, I don't. By the number of court cases crossing my desk, i got to say no. Say otherwise. <laughs> yeah. Liars figure and figures lie. You know, the stats will only get you so far, but it's based on the parameters of the people putting the information in. Yeah. And, you know, we can blow that out of the water every day of the week. You know, I, I look at uh, the number of people getting injured, uh, the number of uh, illegal arrests, the numbers of, uh, well, YouTube, you know, viral videos on things that shouldn't be happening in the first place. People thinking that it's perfectly okay. You know, back to trespass. We should make a whole podcast about just on trespass to property. Oh, yeah. Like, that is yeah. arguably, it's the workhorse. It's the workhorse of the security guard industry, but it yeah. is the most misunderstood piece of legislation that there is. For sure. We will take that away. I think that would be a good good session. Brian. Well, you know, I just want to say uh, I really thank Mike for coming uh, on our joining us today on the podcast. He really has a, a, a wealth of experience and breadth of knowledge that uh, this industry needs. Uh, you know, I just think going forward, it's about professional development. I think that uh, once we realize that security is not a commodity, it's not like a moving company or janitorial, but it's like when you hire a plumber or an electrician or an engineering firm or a law firm, it's a professional service. We have to focus on professional development because the reality is if you look at what's happening on the streets, okay, throughout throughout the world, if you look at the Black Lives Matter movement, for example, and what it's done, the stresses it's caused in the states and Canada and around the world in police community relationships, security is a microcosm of what's happening on the street. I mean, if you look at the Eaton Center, it might be private property, or if you look at the TD Center or the Path in Toronto, it might be private property, but it's the same stressors that are affecting everyone else is happening in those complexes. And those complexes are policed by security. And that's why mm-hmm. the standards have to go up, because the problems the public police are having, the private security community is going to have, and they're not prepared to deal with the issues that uh, are going to befall them. People are coming under scrutiny. Cameras are a way of business. You can't hide your mistakes anymore. And sooner or later, either kicking or screaming, this industry is going to change. It's going to change because Mike gets very rich going as a court-certified expert on litigations. That might be what we need. I like to tell my clients, we don't need to get sued to know. We know how this story ends. It's like COVID. What if I don't wear a mask? What if we don't? We know how the story ends. We don't have to go through the experiment. Same thing with security. We know where this is going. If we don't get our stuff together, we're going to end up in a a pain of hurt. And the legislation that might come and be forced down the industry's throat is not what anyone wants. It might be politically inspired rather than functionally inspired. So that's my two cents. But, Mike, I I really think that, uh, you know, your organization does an incredible service. And we have to look at the security function as a professional service and make sure that they have the skills and trainings. And the type of stuff you do, de-escalation, use of force, law, that's a fundamental element element of security, which right now is lacking. Thanks, Brian. I'm going to summarize by echoing your your sentiments. I think it's, it's the one thing that we didn't uh, touch on that is going to play into it as well, I, I believe, is is the dwindling presence that police officers have out there. And, you know, the expectation, we've had those property managers yeah. say, oh, call 911, okay. And and we know yeah. we have good friends who are in the policing business who will tell you <laughs> good luck with that. Uh, you know, you yeah. might be waiting three days for that response. So yeah. so it, it just means that 
we're going to be more, you know, our clients will be more and more accountable for what goes on on their property. They're going to have to take more ownership for that and not just assume that some guy with a badge is going to show up and save the day. Those days are, are, are behind us. Um, and so with that, I too will, will thank Mike. As, as always, uh, I have always found your, your, your input and uh, perspective interesting because you're on the, you're on the front line basically with, uh, with, with this, with these issues. Um, dealing with it in the courts, uh, let alone um, the training aspects, but in the courts. So you've got the 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 hands-on perspective of what those decisions lead to, what oh. poor decisions lead to. Um, and oh. I love it. I've seen Mike, Brian, you haven't had this privilege, but I've, I've been in, in meetings with Mike where I've invited lawyers, the legal guys from our company <laughs> sit in and, and they, they try to weigh in with their, you know, policing <laughs> perspective or whatever it is. Uh, trying to speak to security issues, and he shuts them down, which is refreshing to see that. Because, uh, and not to say that all lawyers are bad. God but, you bless know what, you, it, Mike. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It, it, it is good fun with that. <laughs> <laughs> it, and it's fun to watch. <laughs> so, so with that, I'm going to close out uh, our podcast. It's been really great talking to you, Mike. Really appreciate your time. Thanks for you having are, me, guys. Uh, renowned expert. Anyone who hasn't seen him speak or uh, or uh, hasn't had the privilege of of having him come in and train your staff. I encourage you to reach out to him. He's a top-notch guy. And that's it for me. Episode 5 on the way. Um, we thank our listeners for continuing to support us. And like us if uh, if you like the episode, and we'll be bringing you more. Uh, first guest was a great success, in my opinion, and uh, we'll be doing more of these. So for me, that's it. Thank you all, and uh, we'll talk to you again. Bye, everyone. Thank you. That concludes this podcast. We hope you enjoyed listening and will join us in a couple of weeks for our latest episode. Please remember to like and follow us on our sponsor's webpage, brianclayman.com, where you can leave us your comments and suggest topics you'd like to hear about in future episodes. Until next time, thanks for listening and don't forget to protect your assets.